Section 12 of Europe and Elsewhere by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by John Greenman. Europe and Elsewhere, Chapter 10. Some National Stupidities. 1891 to 1892. The slowness of one section of the world about adopting the valuable ideas of another section of it is a curious thing and unaccountable. This form of stupidity is confined to no community, to no nation. It is universal. The fact is, the human race is not only slow about borrowing valuable ideas, it sometimes persists in not borrowing them at all. Take the German stove, for instance. The huge white porcelain monument that towers toward the ceiling in the corner of the room, solemn, unsympathetic, and suggestive of death and the grave, where can you find it outside of the German countries? I am sure I have never seen it where German was not the language of the region. Yet it is by long odds the best stove and the most convenient and economical that has yet been invented. Note 1. Compare with his remarks on the same subject in Marienbad, a health factory, written about a year earlier. To the uninstructed stranger it promises nothing, but he will soon find that it is a masterly performer for all that. It has a little bit of a door which you couldn't get your head into, a door which seems foolishly out of proportion to the rest of the edifice, yet the door is right, for it is not necessary that bulky fuel shall enter it. Small-sized fuel is used, and marvelously little of that. The door opens into a tiny cavern which would not hold more fuel than a baby could fetch in its arms. The process of firing is quick and simple. At half-past seven on a cold morning the servant brings a small basketful of slender pine sticks, say a modified armful, and puts half of these in, lights them with a match, and closes the door. They burn out in ten or twelve minutes. He then puts in the rest, and locks the door, and carries off the key. The work is done. He will not come again until next morning. All day long, and until past midnight, all parts of the room will be delightfully warm and comfortable, and there will be no headaches and no sense of closeness or oppression. In an American room, whether heated by steam, hot water, or open fires, the neighborhood of the register or the fireplace is warmest. The heat is not equally diffused through the room. But in a German room, one is as comfortable in one part of it as in another. Nothing is gained or lost by being 
near the stove. Its surface is not hot. You can put your hand on it anywhere and not get burnt. Consider these things. One firing is enough for the day. The cost is next to nothing. The heat produced is the same all day, instead of too hot and too cold by turns. One may absorb himself in his business in peace. He does not need to feel any anxieties or solicitudes about his fire. His whole day is a realized dream of bodily comfort. The German stove is not restricted to wood. Peat is used in it, and coal bricks also. These coal bricks are made of waste coal dust pressed in a mold. In effect they are dirt, and in fact are dirt cheap. The brick is about as big as your two fists. The stove will burn up twenty of them in half an hour. Then it will need no more fuel for that day. This noble stove is at its very best when its front has a big square opening in it for a visible wood fire. The real heating is done in the hidden regions of the great structure, of course. The open fire is merely to rejoice your eye and gladden your heart. America could adopt this stove, but does America do it? No. She sticks placidly to her own fearful and wonderful inventions in the stove line. She has fifty kinds, and not a rational one in the lot. The American wood stove, of whatever breed, is a terror. There can be no tranquility of mind where it is. It requires more attention than a baby. It has to be fed every little while. It has to be watched all the time. And for all reward you are roasted half your time and frozen the other half. It warms no part of the room but its own part. It breeds headaches and suffocation, and makes one's skin feel dry and feverish. And when your wood bill comes in, you think you have been supporting a volcano. We have in America many and many a breed of coal stoves also, fiendish things, every one of them. The base-burner sort are handy and require but little attention, but none of them of whatsoever kind distributes its heat uniformly through the room, or keeps it at an unvarying temperature, or fails to take the life out of the atmosphere and leave it stuffy and smothery and stupefying. It seems to me that the ideal of comfort would be a German stove to heat one's room, and an open wood fire to make it cheerful, then have furnace heat in the halls. We could easily find some way to make the German stove beautiful, and that is all it needs at present. Still, even as it is today, 
It is lovely. It is a darling, compared with any radiator that has yet been intruded upon the world. That odious gilded skeleton, it makes all places ugly that it inhabits just by contagion. It is certainly strange that useful customs and devices do not spread from country to country with more facility and promptness than they do. You step across the German border almost anywhere, and suddenly the German stove has disappeared. In Italy you find a foolish and ineffectual modification of it. In Paris you find an unprepossessing adaptation of our base-burner on a reduced pattern. Fifteen years ago Paris had a cheap and cunning little fire-kindler consisting of a pine-shaving curled as it came from the carpenter's plane and gummed over with an inflammable substance which would burn several minutes and set fire to the most obdurate wood. It was cheap and handy, but no stranger carried the idea home with him. Paris has another swift and victorious kindler now, in the form of a small black cake made of I don't know what, but you shove it under the wood and touch a match to it, and your fire is made. No one will think to carry that device to America or elsewhere. In America we prefer to kindle the fire with the kerosene can and chance the inquest. I have been in a multitude of places where pine cones were abundant, but only in the French Riviera and in one place in Italy have I seen them in the wood box to kindle the fires with. For perfect adaptation to the service required, look at the American gumshoe and the American arctic. Their virtues ought to have carried them to all wet and snowy lands, but they haven't done anything of the kind. There are few places on the continent of Europe where one can buy them. And observe how slowly our typewriting machine makes its way. In that great city of Florence I was able to find only one place where I could get typewriting done, and then it was not done by a native, but by an American girl. In the great city of Munich I found one typewriting establishment, but the operator was sick and that suspended the business. I was told that there was no opposition house. In the prodigious city of Berlin I was not able to find a typewriter at all. There was not even one in our embassy or its branches. Our representative there sent to London for the best one to be had in that capital, and got an incapable who would have been tarred and feathered in Mud Springs, Arizona. Four years ago a typewritten page was a seldom sight in Europe, 
and when you saw it made you heartsick it was so inartistic and so blurred and shabby and slovenly it was because the europeans made the machines themselves and the making of nice machinery is not one of their gifts england imports ours now this is wise she will have her reward in all these years the american fountain pen has hardly got a start in europe there is no market for it it is too handy too inspiring too capable too much of a time-saver the dismal steel pen and the compass-jawed quill are preferred and semi-liquid mud is preferred to ink apparently everywhere in europe this in face of the fact that there is ink to be had in america and at club rates too then there is the elevator lift ascenseur america has had the benefit of this invaluable contrivance for a generation and a half and it is now used in all our cities and villages in all hotels in all lofty business buildings and factories and in many private dwellings but we can't spread it we can't beguile europe with it in europe an elevator is even to this day a rarity and a curiosity especially a curiosity as a rule it seats but three or four persons often only two and it travels so slowly and cautiously and timorously and piously and solemnly that it makes a person feel creepy and crawly and scary and dismal and repentant anybody with sound legs can give the continental elevator two flights the start and beat it to the sixth floor every time these nations merely import an american idea instead of importing the concreted thing itself the result is a failure they tried to make the sewing machine and couldn't they are trying to make fountain pens and typewriters and can't they are making their dreary elevators now and patenting them <laughs> satire can no further go i think that as a rule we develop a borrowed european idea forward and that europe develops a borrowed american idea backward we borrowed gas lighting and the railroad from england and the arc light from france and these things have improved under our culture we have lent europe our tramway telegraph sewing machine phonograph telephone and kodak and while we may not claim that in these particular instances she has developed them backward we are justified in claiming that 
she has added no notable improvements to them. We have added the improvements ourselves, and she has accepted them. Why, she has not accepted and universally adopted the improved elevator is a surprising and puzzling thing. Its rightful place is among the great ideas of our great age. It is an epoch-maker. It is a concentrator of population and economizer of room. It is going to build our cities skyward instead of out toward the horizons. Note 1. This was good prophecy. There were no skyscrapers in New York City when it was written. It is going to enable five millions of people to live comfortably on the same ground space that one million uncomfortably lives on now. It is going to make cheap quarters for Tom, Dick, and Harry near their work, in place of three miles from it, as is the rule today. It is going to save them the necessity of adding a six-flight climb to the already sufficient fatigue of their day's labor. We imitate some of the good things which we find in Europe, and we ought to imitate more of them. At the same time, Europe ought to imitate us somewhat more than she does. The crusty, ill-mannered, and in every way detestable Parisian cabman ought to imitate our courteous and friendly Boston cabman, and stop there. He can't learn anything from the guild in New York, and it would morally help the Parisian shopkeeper if he would imitate the fair dealing of his American cousin. With us it is not necessary to ask the price of small articles before we buy them, but in Paris the person who fails to take that precaution will get scorched. In business we are prompt, fair, and trustworthy in all our small trade matters. It is the rule. In the friendliest spirit I would recommend France to imitate these humble virtues, particularly in the Kodak business. Pray get no Kodak pictures developed in France, and especially in Nice. They will send you your bill to Rome or Jericho or whithersoever you have gone, but that is all you will get. You will never see your negatives again, or the developed pictures either. And by and by the head house in Paris will demand payment once more, and constructively threaten you with proceedings. If you inquire if they mailed your package across the frontier without registering it, they are coldly silent. If you inquire how they expected to trace and recover a lost package without a post-office receipt, they are dumb again. A little intelligence inserted into the Kodak business in those regions would be helpful, if it could be done without shock. But 
the worst of all is that europe cannot be persuaded to imitate our railway methods two or three years ago i liked the european methods but experience has dislodged that superstition all over the continent the system to call it by an extravagant term is sufficiently poor and slow and clumsy or unintelligent but in these regards italy and france are entitled to the chromo in italy it takes more than half an hour to buy a through ticket to paris at cook and son's offices there is such a formidable amount of red tape and recording connected with the vast transaction every little detail of the matter must be written down in a set of books your name condition nationality religion date hour number of the train and all that and at last you get your ticket and think you are done but you are not it must be carried to the station and stamped and even that is not the end for if you stop over at any point it must be stamped again or it is forfeited and yet you save time and trouble by going to cook instead of to the station buying your ticket does not finish your job your trunks must be weighed and paid for at about human being rates this takes another quarter of an hour of your time perhaps half an hour if you are at the tail of the procession you get paper checks which are twice as easy to lose as brass ones you cannot secure a seat beforehand but must take your chances with the general rush to the train if you have your family with you you may have to distribute them among several cars there is one annoying feature which is common all over the continent and that is that if you want to make a short journey you cannot buy your ticket whenever you find the ticket office open but must wait until it is doing business for your particular train and that only begins as a rule a quarter of an hour before the train's time of starting the cars are most ingeniously inconvenient cramped and uncomfortable and in italy they are phenomenally dirty the european system was devised either by a maniac or by a person whose idea was to hamper bother and exasperate the traveler in all conceivable ways and sedulously and painstakingly discourage custom in italy as far as my experience goes it is the custom to use the sleeping cars on the day trains and take them off when the sun goes down one thing is sure anyway if that is not the case it will be presently when they think of it they can be depended upon to snap up as darling an idea as that with joy 
no we are bad enough about not importing valuable european ideas but europe is still slower about introducing ours europe has always from away back been neglectful in this regard take our admirable postal and express system for instance we had it perfectly developed and running smoothly and beautifully more than three hundred years ago and europe came over and admired it and eloquently praised it but didn't adopt it we americans but let prescott tell about it i quote from the conquest of peru chapter two volume one as the distance each courier had to perform was small they ran over the ground with great swiftness and messages were carried through the whole extent of the long routes at the rate of a hundred and fifty miles a day their office was not limited to carrying dispatches they brought various articles fish from the distant ocean fruits game and different commodities from the hot regions of the coast were taken to the capital in good condition it is remarkable that this important institution should have been found among two barbarian nations of the new world long before it was introduced among the civilized nations of europe by these wise contrivances of the incas the most distant parts of the long extended empire of peru were brought into intimate relations with each other and while the capitals of christendom but a few hundred miles apart remained as far asunder as if seas had rolled between them the great capitals of cusco and quito were placed in immediate correspondence intelligence from the numerous provinces was transmitted on the wings of the wind to the peruvian metropolis the great focus to which all the lines of communication converged there that is what we had three hundred and twenty-five years before europe had anything that could be called a business-like and effective postal and express service we are a great people we have always been a great people from the start always alive alert up early in the morning and ready to teach but europe has been a slow and discouraging pupil from the start always from the very start it seems to me that something ought to be done about this end of chapter ten some national stupidities read by john greenman